Yeah, so last week we talked about the glories of heaven and the fact that we're going to be given a new body. We're going to have a heavenly habitation there. And that is something that is our blessed hope. We're looking forward to that. This is going to be great. And because those are the realities that are, are coming our way, this is something that we are expecting. It could also become very tempting now to just sort of dismiss the rest of the stuff going on in this present reality and to kind of, you know, want to bypass this life. It's just temporary. You know, I'm just going to coast along or maybe throw in the towel. I'm just waiting for my heavenly habitation. It can be very tempting, can't it, to do that. But as we continue on in this chapter, we begin to see quite clearly that what we do in this life and what we do in this body matters. In fact, God has a whole program and mission for us to be active in as believers that should cause us to be occupying and active until he comes. So Paul points out a few things in this passage that should be motivating us on in mission for the Lord and that uh, we should be using these lives now for the purposes of God. So Paul in this passage points out a few of these motivations for mission. First of all, the judgment of God. Secondly, the fear of God. And thirdly, the love of God. That's what we're going to be looking at here today. Verse 9 again reads this. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So Paul's desire, above everything else, was that he wanted to be well-pleasing to God. Not just pleasing, but well-pleasing to God. That was their aim, their focus, their drive in living their life was to be using these lives to the, the pleasure and the glory of God. Everything they did was towards that goal. That was the target for them. Just like in anything that we're doing, typically we want to set out with a goal in mind. We have a target in mind that we want to be pursuing, right? If you're going out to play golf, right? You're not just kind of teeing up going, well, where do I want to hit this to? Oh, there's some people over there. Let's see if I can get one. You're not like just aimlessly hitting that golf ball around the course. What are you doing? You're trying to get it down the fairway, onto the green, and then anybody play golf before here? Anybody? Is anybody play golf? Okay. You're trying to get it into? Bingo. Thank you. I was like, man, that is falling flat, that analogy right there. I thought it'd be like, oh, everybody will know that one. It's like, no, everybody's like, uh, what do you do there? Okay, you get in the hole. There's a target in place, and that's your aim. Everything you're doing is to accomplish that. That's what Paul is saying. Our aim is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And so everything that we're doing now is being driven with that in mind to accomplish that goal. Would this be pleasing the Lord? That was Paul's model. It's, it's the original, what would Jesus do model? Like Paul kind of got this going well before that campaign went out in our day. What, what would be pleasing to the Lord? If it's pleasing the Lord, I want to do that. And wouldn't we be spared from a lot of trouble, tragedy, if everything we did was with that mindset of, is this going to be honoring and glorifying to God? Is this going to be well-pleasing to God? I'll tell you, there'd be a lot of things I'd probably have to be cutting out of my life if everything I did was with that mindset of, is this pleasing to the Lord? It would spare us from, I think, a lot of harm. Now, interestingly, as we look at these words here, when Paul says, make it our aim, it's the idea of, like I said here, kind of having that target for us, right? But now, sin, when we look at sin, 
What is sin exactly? Sin is, it can be defined as missing the mark, okay? So it's like taken from this archery term, right? Where you're uh, aiming at the board, you got a target in mind. Sin is getting off of that target. It's going away from that. And so Paul's aim, his target is to be well-pleasing Lord. How do we please God? What is it to be pleasing God? Well, it, it would be to be following his commands, to be obeying his word, walking obediently to the Lord, to be loving him above all. That's just a, a few things I think we can throw out that would be pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul's saying anything that's not doing that and accomplishing that is ultimately a missing of the mark. It's not hitting the target. We wanna hit the target. Anything that's not hitting the target is essentially like sin. So Paul says, this is what we're aiming for. And he says, notice this, that we do this whether present or absent. Whether I'm present or I'm not present or absent from what? Well, this is the context Paul's been dealing with. Look at verse eight there again in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse eight, he says, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's been Paul's context. We looked at that last week. So Paul says, we know that when we lay these bodies down, we're gonna inherit a new body and we're gonna be present with the Lord. So Paul says, I'm not just waiting for heaven to suddenly be well-pleasing to the Lord. That's not when I go, okay, finally now, I can live the Christian life. I'm in heaven now. I've got nothing else to live for. I'm gonna just live. No, Paul says, whether I'm, I'm present or absent, whether I'm in my body or out of my body, doesn't matter. I wanna be well-pleasing to the Lord in everything that I do. That's Paul's objective. That's his target. That's his goal. That's his aim here. And so this is something I think that is important for us. He's saying, what are we aiming for? What is our goal in life? What or who are we living for? Are we being pleasing to the Lord? And, and we're gonna see as we continue on here that how we live our lives today has eternal ramifications. Look what Paul goes on to say here in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, there's coming a day when we are all gonna stand before God and give an account for our lives. How many people are looking forward to that? Yeah, not many of you. Oh man, I don't know that, how that's gonna go. I'm kind of freaked out about that. What's God gonna say about my life? But can I just put you at peace a little bit right now? Because as much as this can be a scary thing for some people, understand that this judgment seat that Paul talks about is not for salvation. This is not about salvation. It's not about if you've made it in or not. This is not a judgment seat to determine if you are if you've qualified for eternity with Jesus. You see, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you put your trust and faith in Jesus and the finished work that he's accomplished there on the cross at Calvary, then guess what? You're in. If you are in Christ, then you are in when it comes to eternity and heaven. You don't get into heaven because of your good works. Nobody's showing up to heaven saying, well, Lord, let me present to you all that I've done that I think merits me coming into heaven. None of that is gonna fly. The issue is, are you in Christ or not? Have you put your faith in Jesus? So this is not about qualification into heaven. This is not about judgment over your sin and salvation. 
Well, what is this judgment about then? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we do see through God's word is that there are, are three judgments that's talked about. First of all, there is the judgment of Matthew 25. Anybody want to take a stab at it? The judgment of, somebody said it, the sheep and goats. Wonderful. Matthew 25. So what is the sheep and the goat's judgment? Well, that happens after the tribulation period. For all those that have survived during the tribulation, there will be some that have gotten saved, but they're trusting Jesus. There have been some that have continued on in their own sin. The separation of the sheep and the goats. Sheep are those that have put their faith in Jesus. And they're gonna be ushered into the millennial reign of Christ. And the goats are gonna be cast away, awaiting their future judgment, which is gonna happen when? The great white throne judgment. That's the second judgment that's talked about in scripture. Great white throne judgment. And that is in Revelation 20. We see that. And that is the judgment of unbelievers. Okay? Revelation 20 talks about how the, the sea and Hades and the dead, they're all gonna give up the dead and they're gonna stand before God. These are all those that have have died apart from faith in Jesus. They've rejected the good news. And they've died, they're in a, in a place called Hades and they're awaiting their final sentence. And so the great white throne judgment that the dead are given up, all those that have, have died apart from faith in Jesus and they're gonna receive their final sentence in that day. So this is for unbelievers. Believers do not stand before the great white throne judgment. But the believers stand before this judgment that Paul talks about, the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what is that judgment seat of Christ? The Greek translates judgment seat as bima. How many people have heard of the bima seat? How many people remember Petra singing in the 80s about the bima seat? And we all must stand at the, okay, forget, you guys are not with me here. Bima seat, all will be revealed. Some of you know it, right? And I remember as a you know, youth listening to that going, what in the world are they? Sounds so Star Trek-y kind of thing, like beam, beam me up. Like, what are they singing about? Well, it's right here, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat. And again, this is not about salvation. This is for believers, okay? We'll put that there, believers only. And this is not, again, about qualification into heaven. Have you done enough? Have you been good enough? Nobody gets into heaven because of those things. You don't get into heaven because of your good work. You get into heaven because of Christ's good work that he did for you on the cross of Calvary. And for all those that have put their faith in Jesus and appropriated that work for yourself are saved. So this is not about salvation. Rather, this is for rewards. That's right. Every believer is going to be rewarded when they go to heaven. This is what Paul's talking about, that each one may what? May receive the things done in the body. There's gonna come a time in heaven that you're gonna receive whatever you've done. That's what that accountability before God is standing before him is to be given those rewards for how you've lived this life, what you've done in the body, meaning how you've lived this life on this earth, in this temporal plane that we're on, what you've done in this life is going to be 
rewarded here. How we live counts for eternity. Now, Paul is using a very familiar um, analogy or picture because in Roman cities, the governor sat on a judgment seat to hear court cases. They called it the Bema seat, a place of judging, all right? Paul had to go through that when he stood before Gallio. Jesus had to stand before the Bema seat when he was tried before Pilate. So we've seen the examples of that. But also, this was the place where uh, officials at the Olympic Games or the Isthmus Games, the judges would stand and give out the, the prizes or the rewards for the athletes and how they competed in the games. Now, remember, Corinth uh, sat just south of Isthmus, the city where the Isthmus Games happened. So Corinth, uh, Corinth became a big destination city whenever the games were happening. So this is a very familiar thing for them to hear about the judgment seat, this Bema seat where prizes or rewards were given. And so one day we understand that we as believers are going to be rewarded for how we've used these lives for him. We're gonna stand before the judge of all and he's gonna give out rewards. Everything that's done for Jesus is gonna be rewarded. How, what is that reward gonna look like? How are we rewarded? What is that? I, I don't know exactly. I don't know what kind of rewards we're gonna, some people think that, you know, your crown is going to be significant of the rewards you have, right? Where you might get a bigger crown or you might have more jewels in your crown and we're gonna walk around. I might have a neck brace to hold my head up with the crown, but we're gonna walk around and be like, hey, nice crown over there. I like that, you know, one jewel you got there. I hope the glare from my crown is not blinding you, right? Like we might, we might think that we're gonna be walking around competing and comparing and everything, but what does the Bible say? We're gonna be casting our crowns down before the Lord saying, you alone are worthy. We're not deserving. We're not worthy. We're not gonna be walking around bragging. There's not gonna be any sin in heaven. So what are these, these rewards like? We don't know. We, all, we do know that when Jesus comes back, He's gonna be reigning and ruling from this earth during the millennial reign. And we, as believers in him, the bride of Christ is gonna be ruling and reigning with him. So perhaps it's going to be that these are gonna be positions of, uh, of um, you know, privilege or uh, places that we're gonna be ruling from. So, you know, if you've done, uh, you know, just you've been really faithful, you know, you'll be like ruling Hawaii. That's kind of where I put my name in for. Lord, I'll take that, I'll, I'll take care of that jurisdiction, right? So we don't know if this is what it's talking about. Uh, it, it could be, we don't know. But again, we're not gonna be looking at these things. Like, you know, nobody's gonna be bummed out, you know, if you're like, oh, like, I got to reign over, you know, Los Angeles. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I got that. Nobody's gonna be bummed out about what you're doing for eternity. We're gonna be with Jesus. That's gonna be the greatest blessing and reward of all my friends is that we're just gonna be with Jesus for eternity. I'm excited about that. The rewards are so secondary. But we do understand that how we live our lives now matters for eternity, that we're going to have value from them. And this is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which is built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 
So I believe Paul here in 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about this beam of seat where we're gonna stand before the Lord and there's gonna be this kind of refining fire where we're gonna be held in account for how we've lived our lives, what we've done for him. All that we've done for the Lord and, and to the Lord and, and to bless one another is going to have reward. It'll have eternal value to it. And there'll be other things that are just gonna be like burned up. It just had no eternal value to it. And those are things sometimes that we might think we're doing in the name of the Lord where maybe we're serving in the church and we think we're doing a really great job and oh, God must be so proud. But you might be doing those things out of selfish or you know, ulterior motives. You might be doing it to be seen, you know, to, to get the praise for yourself. And those are the things that the Lord's gonna be looking, not just on the outward, but on the internal attitudes and motives. And those things not done unto the Lord are just gonna be burned up. Now you're still gonna be saved. You're still going in, but as through fire, there's gonna be a lot of people in heaven that are, are I think for the first couple of days will just be smoldering a little bit, you know? Eyebrow singed perhaps, you know? They're like, is there a barbecue going on? No, just that group over there just got in by the skin of the, no. Uh, you know, like, I, I, I don't wanna see work just burned up. I want there to be eternal value and reward for what I do. I want this life to count. That's what, what Paul is saying here. So all of our works are gonna be tested. They're gonna go through the fire and all the dross and wasted work will be burned away and what remains will be that which has that eternal value to it and it'll be rewarded. So, so what Paul is saying is this, this should be a great motivation for us in living these lives on, on mission and living these lives in a way that, that honors and glorifies or that's, that's well-pleasing to the Lord as he says in verse nine, right? I mean, sure, we can all coast along with the assurance of our salvation, but God hasn't saved us just so that we can be sitting back, sipping margaritas all the live long day, right, until he comes. The real joy is in living these lives for him. And it's not just a joy now, which it is, when we dedicate these lives to be well-pleasing to him, but it'll be a joy for all of eternity. That's certainly how Paul lived his life. Look at what he says in Philippians 3. Verse 13 and 14, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he'd say in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, do you know that, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way as to obtain it. Run so that you may obtain it. I love that about Paul. If anyone could have sat back and coasted along, sipping margaritas, it would have been Paul. He deserved that. But he said, no, I wanna keep moving forward with that aim, with that target of being well-pleasing to the Lord, that I might win that prize, that, that my life might count, that, that there might be reward. Are you living your life in a way where you're looking forward to how God is going to reward you? Are you living to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Now remember, it's not just about how much you do. We're not talking about just doing whatever you can do and doing everything. No, it's not about how much you do. It's about being faithful with what God has given you. That's what God is determining as success. It's not the person that does the most. It's the person that's been faithful with what God has called you to do and what he's given you to use for his purposes and glory. 
Be faithful in that. Paul says at the end of verse 10, according to what he, he has done, whether good or bad. So again, the, the good things are the things that have been done unto the Lord on the Lord's behalf with that desire to bless one another. The bad things are the things we did for self or out of maybe a, a selfish motive. Those works will just be burned up and have no value to them. Now, Paul brings up the second motivating factor we see in our passage today, and that is the terror of the Lord or the fear of God. Look at verse 11. We read there, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, this sounds kind of pretty harsh, negative, scary a little bit, like the terror of the Lord. What? But for the believer, we're not talking about this fear of God or, or worry of an angry God. We know that one day we're gonna see him and, and experience his love in a, in a greater way. And for Paul, this is a real sense of awe in that. Now this passage can have a couple ways that you can look at it. And the, the uh, primary way when you look at this tear is, is Paul's talking about this reverential fear that he has for the Lord. Reverential fear or awe, I should say. Let's say reverential awe. Where he just sees that God is amazing, glorious, wonderful. And Paul is moved with such an awe of the greatness of God that he just wants to live his life for him and persuade, it says, to persuade men that they themselves might know this awesome God. That's what's moving Paul here. That's the primary way that we're looking at this in the context that we're seeing it in. But we also see the obvious implication in those or for those who don't know God. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. You see, Paul knows the tragedy for those that have not yielded their life to Jesus that are not repented of sin, that are still in their sin. He knows the obvious terror that's awaiting them and his desire is to persuade them, to save them, to spare them of that potential outcome or consequence of a life that has not been yielded to God. He wants to do whatever is needed for them to have an opportunity to repent and find life in and through Jesus Christ. Now we talked a lot last week about heaven and the joys of eternity for the believer, but there's an opposite reality to that as well for those who have not repented and given their lives to Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that there's an eternal hell. We don't talk a lot about that, but that is a very reality for people. In Revelation, it's called the lake of fire and it's the final place of eternal torment for those that have not given their life to Jesus. The lake of fire, eternal place of torment. Some would like to say that there's no eternal torment, that it's just annihilation, that you just cease to live, that it's just nothingness. There are people that, that think this is what it's going to be. They, they hope that's all it's going to be. And then there are others that say, oh man, hell I'm not worried about hell, man. Hell's gonna be just a great eternal party. I'm gonna see all my friends and we're just gonna party it up, man. And that's the twisted view that some have of hell as well. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
hell is going to be an eternal place of suffering where the worm never dies. People will live in an eternal existence separated from God. And in the torment of their decision to not receive him. And we should be doing everything we can to see people be spared of such a place. Listen, hell is not, you know, Satan is not, hell is not Satan's home. We're told in Revelation that Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire where he will be in torment forever and ever. The Antichrist is placed in there. All who deny God and resist his free invitation of salvation end up sadly in hell. And that should concern us. This is what Paul is saying. This is why he says here, we want to persuade men. We want to share the truth with them. We want to see people spared from this place. This is what we read elsewhere in scripture. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jude 21 to 23, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some of compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Jude writes, oh, do whatever it takes just to see people spared from that eternal consequence of rejecting Jesus. See them spared from the fire. Do we see lost people around us with that kind of urgency? Do we worry about what's gonna, what it's gonna be like for those who don't know God when they eventually have to stand before him and face that final sentence into the lake of fire? I know that doesn't always rattle me as it should. May our hearts be filled with a prayerful agony for those that are not saved. And may we, like Paul, have a heart that says, out of fear of you, God, out of a reverential awe of you, Lord, I want to be active in persuading men to hear the truth, to know the truth, that they might have the blessing of eternal life with you as well. May that be a concern for us. Now notice what Paul says there as well in um, verse, where verse is that now? Yeah, right here in verse 11. But we are well known to God. Paul says about their lives, we're well known to God. And that's important because there's a lot of people that will say, oh, I know God. And that's important but they're not known by God. That's the important thing. Are you known by God? Now, we can say in a general sense, of course, God, God knows every word is creation. I mean, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Yes, he does. But to know God or to be known by God means that you're in a relationship with him, that you commit your life to him. There's a lot of people that will say, oh, I know God. Oh, yeah. You know, he's that cosmic force in the sky. You know, we talk every once in a while. You know, and they have this idea that they know God, but they're not known by God. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7, we read this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? 
And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a sobering thought for us here today. There'll be many that have put on a show that they know the Lord. They've been active in, in doing stuff for the Lord. But the Lord in that day will say, I never knew you. You were doing things for yourself. You were doing things for your own glory, but you're not doing it for me. You're not in relationship with me. The question is not, do you know God? The question is, are you known by God? Are you in a relationship with him? Do you have that assurance of salvation because you've committed your life to Jesus? You've, you've put your hope and your faith and your trust in him to where you're living your life now for him obediently and walking in relationship with him. Paul goes on to say there in verse 12, he says, oh, we do not commend uh, ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So Paul, again, had to continuously combat the false accusations that were being brought uh, or lobbied against him by these false apostles that had come into the church of Corinth in his absence, trying to rally the people against Paul and, and seek to have people following them. And so Paul's just trusting in his own life and his actions that they are speaking clearly to the consciences of those that he's ministered to in Corinth. They don't have to, you know, deny Paul or, or question Paul. He knows he doesn't need to commend himself or bring a letter of, of endorsement to them. In fact, the believers at Corinth should rather be boasting in him. And it's not so much boasting in Paul's greatness, right? it's kind of boasting in his weakness and in his weakness, seeing God's greatness at work in his life because that's what Paul's been talking about in all that he's gone through, the trials, the tribulations. He's able to say, God sustained me. We're still here. Remember, he says, you know, we're hard pressed on our side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. It's an opportunity to, to boast not in in Paul's greatness, but in God's greatness at work through Paul and through his weakness. That's what Paul is desiring. And that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. And he's speaking about those false apostles now who were coming along boasting in, in their own appearance. Look at how great we are. Look at the authority we wield. Look at how, how wonderful. And they're, they're looking at just an outward appearance, but their hearts were not right with the Lord. They're boasting in outward appearance, but not in heart. They were the ones who said, oh, we know God but yet we're not known by God. So we see these two motivating factors in mission to Lord, the judgment of God, the fear of God. Thirdly, we look at, I think, one of the, the best motivators, the love of Christ. Look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. This is where we get that expression of being beside ourselves. You've, you've heard that. Hopefully you haven't, you know, used that towards another person before here, but it's the idea like these are people that have just gone a bit crazy. It's like they're beside themselves having a conversation with themselves. You go, that person's insane. That's what people were saying about Paul. They look at him and go, this guy's gone insane. He's beside himself. Paul says, oh, you can call me crazy, but I'll tell you, I'm crazy for God. That's what I'm crazy about. And Paul lived his life in a way where he says, I'm ready to go all out for God. I'm ready to be seen as a guy that's absolutely insane. And people could easily conclude that about Paul because here's a guy that's been, like we said, hard pressed. He's been crushed or, or hard pressed. He's been perplexed, persecuted. Uh, he's been through all these things and yet he keeps going. Why? 
He says it right here. It's because of the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels me, keeps me going. So he says, you can call me crazy, but man, if I'm beside myself, it's for God. I do it all under the Lord. And if I'm of sound mind, a right mind, if I'm speaking intelligibly, which he often did too, says it's for your benefit, it's for you. But here's the thing, he says, it is the love of Christ that kept him moving, that kept him going, that kept that drive to where he says, man, my aim is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. It's the love of Christ that's keeping me going in these things that moved him. That word, compel here, and I love that word. It's the Greek word, syneko. And what that means is to hold together. It also means to seize so what Paul is saying here, essentially, is that it's the love of Christ that has just so completely seized me and gotten a hold of me. This is what I'm all about. The love of Christ has overwhelmed me and seized me to say, I just want to live my life in full devotion to him. I want to surrender my life to him in a way where it doesn't matter what goes on, what I might face, what I might encounter, that doesn't change what I'm going to do because the love of Christ has just compelled me and seized me. And now he can also say, it's the love of Christ that's held me together when I've gone through times of being perplexed or hard-pressed. When I've been through these tribulations and these difficulties, it's the love of Christ that holds me together. I know that he's not going to abandon me. I know that he is for me. I know that he's going to see me through. Paul's already seen God sustain him time and time again. And he knows it's the love of Christ. We never have reason to question and wonder, God, do you love me? I'm going through a trial right now. I'm going through some difficulty. Lord, where are you? Don't you love me? I've just been trying to serve you. No, Paul says, the love of Christ keeps me going. It's the love of Christ that has already been shown, proven, and has already been evident. Paul speaks about that coming up, but we know Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. What are you being moved by or held together by today? Are you maybe feeling forgotten or forsaken? Are you fearful and fretting? may you be reminded today of the great love that God has for you. And may that love of Christ not just only keep you, but move you in faithfulness to the Lord, holding you together and just seizing you, grabbing a hold of you to know the greatness of God's love that he's already shown to you. And this is what Paul goes on to talk about here now in verse 15, when he says, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Notice something here. We read that he died for who? For all. Not just some. Not just the elect. Not just those that have really earned the love of God. He's died for all. This sacrifice was sufficient for all. But it's given now and appropriated to those who put their faith in Jesus. He's died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is what Paul's getting at here in this passage. That these lives are not just to be absorbed with self and live for self. 
oh, we have a great future we're looking forward to, but we don't waste away our time now looking forward to that day. In fact, that day is gonna be more greatly enriched by how we use these lives today. And we understand that Christ died, not just to save us, as great as that is, I mean, that's amazing, but think about this, that he didn't just die and give you salvation, he died to save you, to now use you for his purposes. And that boggles my mind. So I think, God, if you wanna be freed from some headaches, don't use us. Just save us, keep us tucked away. So I'll be, I'll be back for you. Just try to stay out of trouble until I get there. But God says, no, man, I, I wanna see you used and, and, and partnering with me in the work that I have to do and seeing people come to know me, see lives change. We get to be participants in that. What a blessing that is. He died not just for you to live your life as you want. He died so that you could use this life now for his purposes and his glory. Paul says in Romans 12, when I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May we use these lies all for the glory of God. There's no greater blessing that you'll have in this life. There's no joy to be found when life is consumed with self. There's no blessing in that. There's only misery. But when you say, I've died. My life is now hidden with Christ in God. I'm gonna live this life now for his purposes and for his glory. That's the life that you're not going to be tripped up by people that frustrate you, that burden you. You've died to self, you're living for Christ, and that's the life that's gonna be filled with the greatest blessing and joy as you serve him, as you partner with him. Paul concludes here in verse 16, therefore from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. So because of what we've experienced in Christ and the fact that he has made all things new, we no longer now have to evaluate things just on an outward basis. Paul had done that with Christ previously before he was saved. Remember, Paul's persecuting the church. He's seen them as just a heretical bunch that's following this guy, Jesus, this guy that they claim to be the Messiah. And Paul's thinking, oh man, you guys are so wrong. And he went after them. He viewed Christ according to the flesh. But then he met Jesus for who he really is. He got saved. He turned around and, and now he says, we no longer look or judge according to the flesh. We don't need to because Jesus is doing a work now in people's lives. And we're thankful that, you know, we're not yet who we're going to be, but praise the Lord, we're not who we once used to be. God's doing a work in us. And as we find that work, and Paul says, we're gonna look now with an eternal lens at one another. We're gonna look in, in matters of eternity. And that's what he says in, in chapter five or seven, that we walk by faith, not by sight. We no longer need to judge one another according to the flesh because Jesus is doing a work and making all things new. And, and one day they're gonna be made perfect in his sight. So may we have that lens of eternity. May we continue to see people as opportunities to serve and to bless 
and to be compelled by the love of Christ. May we be motivated by judgment, the rewards that's coming. May we be motivated by the fear of God, but more so may we be motivated by the love of Christ that seizes us and holds us together in all things to continue on serving our King and seeking to be a blessing to one another. Looking forward to all that he has in store for us.